This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to the Baking, Boiling, Subterranean Culture Bunker, your weekly pop culture hideout. I'm Andrew Harrison. And I'm Alex Andreu. On this week's edition, Enter Sandman. The Netflix adaptation of Neil Gaiman's acclaimed comic series, The Sandman, is exciting even people who would never touch a comic book with a set of tongs. What will we make of it? Plus, the producer that everybody wants, Danger Mouse, returns to his hip-hop roots with the new album Cheat Codes in collaboration with the MC Black Thought from The Roots. And we turn our baseball hats backwards and shout, Radical Dude, as we enter the pure <laughs> living hell of Woodstock 99, as laid bare in the Netflix documentary Trainwreck. Is there something darker going on with this film than simple schadenfreude? Plus, we've got new tunes for your ears and, of course, more selections of the greatest record ever made. All this and more on today's Culture Bunker. Welcome to the podcast. It's summertime, and like many a business, we just can't get the staff these days. So we have just one special guest for you today. Returning to the podcast, it's renowned music business writer, a man who a very miffed Jack White once called a tabloid journalist. It's Eamon Ford. Welcome back, Eamon. <laughs> Hello. You, uh, well, you can't get the staff and you can't get the guests. <laughs> you it's me, but you're here. It's high quality, I think. It's, uh, it's raising the average well, quality uh, of the No, guests. no, no. It, it, it's about quantity rather than quality. I'm just filling a seat. Like like you get at those uh, big posh award shows, they have the, the seat fillers when celebrities go to the bathroom for extended <laughs> periods of time and then come back jovially. You will, there's there's people yeah, who are paid to sit in their seats. They've just no been talking to their around. agent is what it is usually. So you've broke the rule of a lifetime this summer and went to an actual festival in the outdoors. You went to the secret garden party. How was that, Eamon, for a man who loves festivals? I went with my girlfriend, Sonia, who insisted that we go because I was doing a talk on the Sunday for my book and they offered us... Uh, glamping for the entire weekend (laughs) and Sonia said we should go for the entire weekend and then by Saturday morning she said I have made a terrible mistake (laughs) and she was not talking about me she was talking about being at the festival but there was extreme and very public hedonism that was happening in the crowd in daylight hours and then probably even worse happening in uh, the nighttime hours but people seemed very vivified let's say in, in bursts of I don't know 30 minutes I don't even know what to say. So what yeah. would it take to make a music festival Ford-friendly? Uh, hotels. If and I no could, bands. And no bands, yes. <laughs> uh, if it can finish at uh, 10 o'clock, that mm-hmm. would be good. If I can be on site and see everything I need to see in a four-hour period and then can leave and go to a hotel where I can actually have a proper night's sleep and a bathroom and eat breakfast that doesn't cost £4,000 for a raggedy bit of bacon in a steel roll, I would be happy. And if the headliner was, say, Avatars of Blanche from Coronation Street? I would be there. I okay. would be. I would stage dive. 
You are so my tribe. (laughs) It's incredible. With your music business uh, analyst hat on, are you terribly excited about the first ever TikTok classical album that's coming out? Orchestral versions of the biggest TikTok sounds, whatever that means. It's out uh, yesterday, if we're, this was going on, and Saturday it came out, I got a press release and had to check that it really was from Warner Music that this thing had been created, <laughs> and I listened to it, and it's exactly what you think, and it's... But is it tunes, or is it like an orchestration of the sound of somebody slamming the and door? I think they, they have, uh, one of the tracks I listened to was Levitating by Dua Lipa, and I think they used her vocals from the track, I think, or someone who sounds incredibly like her. So I guess they've kind of they've sampled stuff. It's very weird, but it almost feels like it's a kind of SEO thing on Spotify where someone just types in TikTok music and that'll kind of uh, hit high up on the list. And it reminds me of, uh, I think it was Sony did this at Christmas. They did a greatest, greatest Christmas playlist ever or no, or Christmas music playlist or something like that. So that when people were asking for Christmas music yeah. on Alexa or other voice uh, assistants that it would play their playlist. So it feels like an attempt to game the algorithm a little bit. I think if I was a crap band, I'd change my name to Christmas music. Yeah, absolutely. And then you're just laughing, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Before we get started, don't forget you can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without adverts when you support The Bunker on Patreon. That's daily episodes on politics, science, pop culture and much more. Delightfully ad-free. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. And if you want to help us out a little more, why not fill in our listener survey? The link is in the show notes and you could win one of five Bunker t-shirts. Why not do it right now while you're listening to the show? Mr. Sandman, dream me a dream, make it the darkest, most twisted I've ever seen. When a human magician traps dream, the eternal being in charge of the dream realm, for a hundred years, his kingdom suffers, ordinary people suffer, nightmares escape, and his magical equipment is stolen. Once free, dream, played by Tom Sturridge, must regather his equipment and restore order. But what if order doesn't particularly care for being restored? Sandman on Netflix is based on the Neil Gaiman comic book series. Here's a trailer. Your waking world is shaped by dreams. Dreams and nightmares that I create and which I must control. He's out there looking for me, isn't he? Can you imagine the damage he could do? I need your help. If dreams disappear, then so will humanity. I could do without dreams for a while. I haven't had a decent night's sleep in ages. I'm not going to stop until I've reshaped this world. Tell us what power of dreams can have. Eamon, as often with a fantasy genre, to enjoy it, you have to either willingly give yourself over to it 
or it has to overcome your cynicism and drag you in. Did Sandman do either for you? I watched two episodes and bailed because it's not for me, but I am very intrigued to see what you two comic geeks make of this. And <laughs> I'm actually, not a comic geek. I thought you were. He's no. Okay, fantasy geek. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I love okay. the visual thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I want you to explain it to me because there is a presumption with something like this that, that if you come in cold, there, I, there's, there's so much history, there's so much so many deep references when you take a, a comic book and transfer it into a TV series or a film or whatever so it presumes a lot of prior knowledge and I guess it rewards you if you have that prior knowledge but I think if you're coming in cold it leaves you cold or it certainly left me cold it was not something that I felt I wanted to kind of investigate further but and that's happily me putting my hands up and going I probably didn't understand any of the nuance any of the depths any of the reference points but I just felt like it felt a little exclusionary for people who weren't pre-invested mm. in the show but I'm, I'm very happy to have it have it comic book explained to me well actually weirdly I am a comic book geek as listeners will know but I actually never read Sandman I've never read any of the comics at all okay. I quite like Neil Gaiman stuff but this is it's a bit like being a rock journalist and going no, I just never got around to listen to the Rolling Stones just never listen to them um, <laughs> you know because it's such a big thing it's a massive massive have thing have you read any of it now I, I've lived you know, it, odds and sods but I thought I will do the experiment of going in cold I'll try right, okay. and be and I did, I did spot one or two things that I recognised from DC Comics, like the rhyming demon and the appearance of Cain and Abel in the House of Mystery and the House of Secrets. They're all mm, drawn from mm. DC Comics. But the rest of it, I didn't know any of it, and I was carried along perfectly well. I think, though, you are from that world. It's, you are, you yes. under, you, it, it appeals, to, it hits all your pleasure notes. Even if you don't necessarily know the nuances of the story, you, you understand where it fits into the wider context of comic books and their transition onto the screen exactly. and so forth, which wasn't wasn't my yeah. insight into it. it just I I lacked those reference yeah. points I think so the so the concept was completely new to me but the grammar and the pacing yeah. and the world is very very familiar I mean, to me for me it takes a, a bunch of familiar myths yeah yeah essentially and puts them in a bag and shakes them mm. and I fully understand that some people might find the result derivative because of that but mm. I find it quite original because of that, yeah. because it takes, you know, concepts that I know about angels, about, you know, Cain and Abel, about yeah. Lucifer, about, and, and slightly twists it into something else. Yeah. So I quite like finding out in this slightly different version of the biblical reality, effectively, mm -hmm. how things are, are different. A show like this lives of or dies, I think, by its central performance. How does Tom Sturridge do, do we think? How about you? Well, in the first, the opening episode is he barely speaks because uh, he's kind of captured in a way without giving any spoilers away. Uh, so a lot of it is just kind of slow movement and kind of eye contact and things like that. And he kind of looked like a really malnourished Bernard from Black Books, yes. I thought. <laughs> and I was hoping maybe he would have that kind of excessive alcohol and cigarette intake uh, to kind of fuel his uh, misanthropic approach. And I know that some people online have kind of made the Zoolander reference and things like that because there's a lot of blue steel acting going on before yes. he actually gets to speak. He speaks a bit more in the second episode, so you can kind of... And he does look... He's certainly got an incredibly striking look. And, like, he's got one of those faces that 
you, that kind of will draw you in on a, on a guess. Uh, I can kind of understand why, particularly young people would would kind of see him as some kind of icon, and they would they would really buy him. He's, to... he's goth eye candy, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't get out of the. It took me a long while to stop thinking. Were you fanning yourself? It's like no, it took me a long time <laughs> to stop thinking. It's like Robert Smith, but really thin yeah. and yeah. outy. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, that, well, actually, that is kind of. A, a huge appeal of the Sandman comic was it brought a load of people whose main kind of framework of the world was, you know, goth music, goth iconography, brought them into comics, yeah. which was great, I thought. I had an issue with the CGI, but then I was thinking about it, and maybe the CGI... CGI was dialed up to, yeah. like, 25, and it was so hyper-real that it started to look cheap and kind of jarring, but I don't know, is that... Was that intentional? Because it is this whole leading between the real the world of dreams the and real world, world yeah. and fantasy mm. and so forth but it felt it was so heavy on the cgi at points you could just say right okay they're standing in front of a green screen and there's nothing else there and i find that quite distracting but then i was wondering was that intentional or is that just part of the cgi arms race where you just have to just layer it on and on and on and on and it kind it's of probably a mix of both yeah, to be honest yeah. i mean it's it's out there trying to compete with the new Lord of the Rings on Amazon Prime and the new addition to the Game of Thrones mm-hmm. franchise. Huh. Um, and I guess they're trying to... They're trying to make the production values big mm. for yeah. bigness's sake in some ways. But it's worth pointing out, actually, that this is really... It's an anthology series, and I'm sex in, and many of the episodes contrast enormously. There is a literal journey into hell where we meet Gren- Gwendolyn Christie of Game of Thrones fame, Brian of Tal, you know, the yeah, seven yeah, yeah. foot tall big love son. Gwendolyn Christie. She's playing Lucifer yeah. with the big black wings. This is on a grand epic scale of reproduction of hell that absolutely sears the eyes. Loads and loads going on. The following episode is almost like in a, a David, diner. It's a David Mammoth yeah. bottle episode yeah. in a diner, yeah. which is in many ways more horrific than the journey into hell. I really like that because as well as having the part of the comics grammar that is preserved is that one issue might be very different to the one you've just read. Is because it, it, there were different artists, apparently, because yep. because Gaiman collaborated with different yeah. visual artists. Oh, right. Mm. Um, the visual style from uh, book to book, from story to story, can be very, very different. So, again, and they've actually it. made that effort yes. in yes. the thing. So is it... To it, make things look... Does it evolve in the same way that something like WandaVision did, which was... They, they were obviously playing with genre motifs, but then stylistically each episode was very different. So is it a bit like that? Well, WandaVision foregrounded that and actually yeah, made yeah, yeah, part no. of the story. Yeah. This, is, this is backgrounded. This, you, you, what it does is what great comics often do, which is you have a long arc of, and in this case it's um, it's Dream, a.k.a. Morpheus, attempting to return, get his, his various... Symbols of office back yeah, to retain yeah. his power. But within it, there are just moments. There are just what in games you would call side quests. There's a fantastic episode with a, a character called Hob Gadling, who Dream and his sister meet in 1489. And he's in the pub and Hob Gadling is in this, this ancient tavern saying, I don't want to die. I want to live forever. I remember people think it would be awful. I think it'd be great. And his wish is granted. And they go back and uh, Dream goes back and meets him every 100 years. Now, that's essentially a Twilight Zone episode. And it's, it's, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I loved it. It's self contained, great little performances, tremendous fun, has, as all great comics do, it feeds into the wider story in small ways. But you can watch it entirely on its own and get a lot from it. 
beautifully acted. And, and it goes very much against the usual portrayal of immortality in comics and science fiction, which is, oh, it would be terrible, it'd be awful, it'd be begging for death, not hobgaddling. Yeah, I don't. I don't entirely agree about the acting. I thought the acting was patchy. Actually, yeah. I, I thought it was. A well, series, you're a professional. Right. Well, I thought it was a serious weak link. I mean, Sturridge does do a little bit too much pouting and tilting and staring at the camera. Mm. Thewlis, even David Thewlis. Yes, I found that for for some episodes he was sort of playing an atmosphere rather than a character. Yeah. It's only in the diner episode that he really. Yeah. begins to flesh. Where he's almost silent and immobile, where, yeah. Where, where he's really beginning to flesh out the character. There are people like Viviana Chamapong as Lucienne, who I think is splendid. Yeah. And Patton Oswalt, uh, choosing Patton Oswalt as the voice of a raven, yes. I think is an absolute stroke of genius. He's the little guy from United States of Tara and Parks and Recreation. and all. Oh, yeah. He's got like a really... He sounds like a New York stand-up comic. Yes. And it's it's just really, really... He's a good a, sidekick. ...a great yeah. choice and a, and a funny thing. I thought the art direction is spectacular. Mm. I really enjoyed the sort of different places to which it goes. Hell is especially yeah. stunning. They do weird things with the aspect ratio, which apparently loads of people have been calling up Netflix and uh, going, um, is there something, is my telly selecting the wrong why, thing? Why is this film about living in a world of dreams look a bit weird on my <laughs> uh, on my telly? I don't understand it. Why is it a bit surreal and unusual? No, is that but, their objection? <laughs> well, not exactly. No, they as an artistic choice, apparently... In the dream realm, they stretch the to- It's a letterbox format, mm. and they stretch the top third to just make it look like everything is about to evaporate, I guess, or, or kind of mm. going into the distance. So it, it's not just people being totally stupid, but I think <laughs> it's a really interesting, unusual yeah. choice that yeah. I haven't seen before of someone messing with a visual format in that way. I, th- I think the soundtrack is terrific. Um, because I'm picking up a lot of Baroque instruments in there mm. and with it electronic and loads of sampling and it all just sounds like it's timeless but also really futuristic and weird. I'm also getting the classic theme tune thing of I, I hear that that line and immediately my brain is going, he is the Sandman, <laughs> he is the Sandman, your line of duty, line of duty. That's often something. I don't know whether they intend to do this, but maybe this is what happens when you're trying to write, th- write the theme tune. No, no, the theme no, no. They definitely, they definitely go for light motifs. They mm. definitely repeat little riffs. Um, the the um, the array of star guests it's is incredible. Incredible. I mean, it's almost disrespectful to sort of get Charles dance and just get him to do ten minutes in the first episode, or you know, Stephen Fry, Jolie Richards, and Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill plays a man with a pumpkin for a head. You never even see him. Well, he's a um, trooper. Uh, Gwendolyn Christie, like you said, Roger Allen, dozens yeah. of British uh, yeah. comedians, Lenny Henry, Nina Wadia, Andy Osho, many, many more. I love the way the narrative is linear mm. because I'm so tired of trying to work out where in time we are. Yeah. Precisely. So broadly speaking, the timeline is linear, but it does stretch bits that are to do with character development Mm. and kind of go quickly over bits that are expositional. And Mm. I quite like that 
pacing. So all in all, I mean, I've seen five episodes. It's really drawn me in and I'm not. Uh, yeah. And, it, um, you know, my main kind of the reason I didn't read the comic was I thought this is a bit goth for me. That was what turned me off. But I've been absolutely won over by this. Really. Can I ask it. you something on that? So with all these things from MCU films to The Walking Dead to Sandman, now that you've experienced kind of both, mm-hmm. you've seen loads of stuff where you knew the comics really well and now something mm-hmm. where you didn't. Do you think people who know the comics get more or less out of them? Is it Can you become immersed if you know the comic really well or does it become a game spot the difference? There are a couple of ways to react if you know the comics. One is to get really nitpicky and start complaining that somehow it's being got in quotes wrong now there is no getting it wrong just because somebody who was up against a scripting deadline in 1989 made a particular decision about a character does not mean that that is kind of canon or right or correct writers must serve the story and if you need to change it then change it that shows more respect to the idea than slavishly reproducing fantastic four issue 12 much as i'd like to see fantastic four issue 12 on the big screen (laughs) When it's, I find, at speaking from my community of nerds, I find that when it's aimed squarely at us, it's a bit disappointing. It's, mm. If it's just there to be faithful and kind of slavishly accurate, it tends not to work. Whereas when people, much as, say, Russell Davis did with, when he remade Doctor Who, you know, he clearly loves it enough to mess around with it, enough to change things, enough to go against the established stuff. I love the fact that um, I could, you know, spot the bit in hell where the demon Etrigan should have been. But that's just a little thing for me. That Bringing in the actual character from the comic would not have added at all to the general viewer's enjoyment mm. of it. And therefore, don't do it. Do what's necessary for the big audience, I think. Eamon, have, you, have we picked, piqued your interest enough to, um, to get you to push through with another couple of episodes? In a word, no. <laughs> Life is, life is too short. I give it a go and you, you have to understand your limits in mm. culture. It's like I, I, it, if I had flat out refused to watch it and said I hate it, uh, then that would have been a bad thing. I give it a go and it's not for me. And you, as, yeah. you, as you get older, you go, that's absolutely fine. I'm cool. happy. Yeah. I'm happy that people are delighted by this. I didn't hate it, but... I just didn't understand yeah. the layers, so it felt it felt really alien to me. Perfectly but, respectable, I think. Yeah. I've become quite shrewd about stopping films after twenty minutes yeah. now if they don't. But if they do nothing. For I me. think an adaptation of Sandman that didn't provoke that reaction amongst the kind of people for whom this is just—it's not your thing. You'll be doing it wrong. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it, it's something that's clearly layered and has a lot of depth and draws in reference points from lots of different places and to do it straight to just to do the normie version for someone like me it's just got to kill everything that made it interesting Mm. but I almost feel like you want to get like remember those uh books you used to get when you were studying Shakespeare uh, for GCSE the cheap, <laughs> the cheap books Sandman yeah. the Dummies yeah yes. yeah yeah something like that or basically at the end there's a Notes. little 50, yeah a little 15 minute synopsis on the red button which goes okay there we go right we're going to boil this down to stupid Eamon level and I will explain everything there we and go. then it's so, your choice to play the next one. So, yeah, if you want to broaden your audience, I think put in that handrail for people like me. We always ask our guests to bring in a tune that they're currently obsessed with as a service to you, the listener, and then we put them on our Spotify and Tidal playlists with links in the show notes. Eamon, what have you chosen to bring in? 
I brought in a song called Undo the Blue by Irina Mancini or Mancini. Mm-hmm. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, and it might be the forerunner uh, as my single of the year. Oh, already. Right. I love it. And it's like you listen to it and it's basically a kind of update of uh, Lay Fleur by Minnie Ripperton. And she doesn't go and hit Minnie Ripperton notes. But it's like it's a wonderful confection. She did a couple of really great singles last year. Uh, there was D-Band, which was just sounded like a lost Northern Soul track. And then Do It, You Stole the Rhythm. And oh, we really like her. So what do we think, know about her? Uh, she is a DJ. So I think she does, uh, I think she got a show on Soho Radio. Mm-hmm. And I think she kind of DJs at kind of lots of fashionable parties and has been making music for a few years. I think maybe was she in other bands beforehand. I'm not sure. But it's just a wonderful, wonderful song. And uh, it's nine thumbs up for me. Okie doke. Well, it's going on the playlist, of course. And here is a clip. This is Irina Mancini with Undo the Blue. You may well know the multiple Grammy-winning hip-hop producer Danger Mouse from Niles Barkley of Does That Make Me Crazy fame, or maybe Demon Days by Damon Albarn's Gorillaz, or perhaps Beck's Modern Guilt album. If you're a real hip-hop head, you'll definitely know his Danger Doom work with MF Doom, the album The Mouse and The Mask. Danger Mouse's superpower is to make the dense bump and grind of sample-based hip-hop into, somehow, accessible pop music. But he hasn't made a proper hip-hop record in some 17 years. Until now, Cheat Codes is out this weekend, and it's a collaboration with the rapper Black Thought of hip-hop band The Roots. Now, it's fair to say that neither Alex, Eamon, nor I are exactly head-nodding gangster b-boys from the deadly street corners of Mykonos, Ballymena, or Magull. But <laughs> we're going to see what we think after you listen to this track. This is Aquamarine, featuring podcast favourite Michael Kiwanuka. Tussling with the reaper, sensory deprivation to ultimate synesthesia. Freeing our brother's keeper from teeth of another creature. Breaking and entering to the theater, the search and seizure is the birth of genius. Somewhere between Earth and Venus, at her convenience, even now believers make players, haters and naysayers is buried in cake layers. Hey man, I'm one of those people who says, yeah, yeah, I really like hip hop, and then I realize I haven't listened to anything new since A Tribe Called Quest. Is this because hip hop no longer has to try to be accessible to Joe Schmo like me? Because it's now so vast. I think so. I think mm. so. You'll obviously, you'll get crossover acts. You'll get a Kendrick Lamar that kind of unites everyone. Maybe hip-hop heads kind of go, oh, he's too commercial or he's yeah. too crossover or whatever. But I absolutely love this album. I think it's incredible. Yeah. It, it's definitely, I've only been playing it for like three or four days and it's already front runner. Top five albums a year so far. It's yeah. just brilliant because sonically, 
he's got a clear vision of where he wants this to go and there's lots of brilliant reference obviously he's drawn in on samples he's got a, a massive turn of really good uh, guest vocalists as well and there's lots of reference points 60s soul 70s uh, into stacks and stuff mm-hmm. like that and uh massive tunes as well like yeah. he's obviously the production is incredible and kind of how he uses and weaves in the samples and uses the vocals is incredible but he's uh, done uh, Pop 101 which is just right bangers yeah really. well this is what I loved about it it's like when I run into contemporary hip hop now my major kind of old man objection is there's not much going on here is it it's just the rhymes and a beat and not yeah. much else When you, then you see you, you know in kind of like run the jewels and there's loads going on it's very yeah, exciting yeah. this to me felt like it was connected directly to the likes of Eric B and Rakim or Stetsasonic the old the kind of old guy stuff that I like when it was fully realised sound world rather than just beats as a vehicle kind yeah. of thing yeah, and well, there are beats there, but it's not it's not reduced down this kind of minimalist strip back thing. It's like he's he's just piling stuff on there, but uh, it's not overwhelming. There's a lot happening, and and mm. the more you listen to it, the kind of the deeper into the, this kind of sonic world you sink. Yeah. And yeah, I just think it's it's just brilliant, and it actually does cliche alert it does flow like an album. It certainly flows like an album because I can't think of a Duff track. On there, I yeah. think everything kind of works. So there's kind of there's peaks and troughs, and there's a journey, man, yeah. and all of that. But yeah, it's just like a, a, as a piece of songwriting, it's incredible, and as a piece of production, it's super incredible. It's also incredibly dense, and as you know, packed with meaning the way you want hip hop to be. Every line is there to be unpacked. There's you know, Black Thought on this track, Belize. He's uh, he's, he's writing up my bars are as hard as Angola's bars, as in bars of rhymes at Angola prison in Louisiana. The, the, the kind of infamous one. Do, do you think that like uh, people are actually uh, people are actually listen to hip-hop full-time are going to go, yeah, that's what it's always like. What are you so excited about? Yeah, well, but maybe if this is becomes the album that then is your trigger point to go back yeah. and go, well, you should also be listening to X, mm. Y, and Z, I think is really important. I mean, and I guess you need those kind of crossover albums or those albums that kind of appeal to a broader audience so that, okay, you're, this could be your way either into this world or your way back into this yeah. world if you're kind of terribly old. And I guess, although there is one thing, and I'm, I'm intrigued to see how this plays out in the next couple of weeks in the light of what happened with the Lizzo album and well, the yes. Beyonce album because uh, it's the MF Doom track or MFI Doom track and there is a... The oh, S word. Yes, there's a very, very kind of... Uh, it kind of sucks the air out of the room when there's a very clear ableist slur yeah. and it's pretty much the same issue that was with the Lizzo album and the Beyonce album so I'm wondering if that's going to be scrubbed from it because I think the, the pressure mm. and the kind of the moral ethical arguments around or it is like this kind of taking a step back and going right we maybe we yeah. we shouldn't have, have said that I think I Americans if that don't it. take that word as seriously as we do here for some reason yes yeah uh, but I think just it coming uh, and obviously this yeah. has been recorded before all of that controversy that doesn't obviously excuse the, the use of the word mm. and it was recorded while he died in what 2020 so yeah. it was recorded before he died but even then it's still it's one of those words that kind of sucks the air out of the room as soon as mm. you hear it and I think that was the uh, and you don't want to be be kind of thought police or anything yeah. like that, but I think that's the one where you just go, ooh, a bit of a needle not. scratch, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Alex, as a man with enough opera records in his house to build another house from, uh, how are you on hip hop? 
I'm ecumenical in my music tastes, mm-hmm. to be honest. I listen to all sorts, with the exception of death metal, just because I don't <laughs> like people screaming at me, and Christian rock, because mm. I don't like people screaming <laughs> at me. Um, I will listen to everything. I was um, astounded by this, yeah. absolutely blown over. In my view, usually, collaboration, musical collaborations don't work. Sports. Collaborations don't work. They've written a song called Collaboration that goes, collaborations don't work, yeah. they don't work. Anyway. <laughs> but, but you know, there are famous ones that work and behind them is, a, a, you know, a litter yard of terrible ones that yes. don't. Because either the clash is too much and the result is unmusical or there's so much compromise that it just becomes brown. Mm. And, you know, both lose their identity. And I think this is one of the best working musical collaborations that I've ever heard. Mm. I mean, on one side, you have a sort of soul jazz cinematic soundscape. And on the other, you have this rap track that acts as a narration. Mm. And the overwhelming feeling I had, especially when I was listening to it uh, the second time on my headphones was of this really cool dude walking down the street in a, in a black exploitation film yeah. and hearing the internal monologue. Mm. That's, that's the thing I, I had in my head. I thought it was just utterly terrific. I will disagree on all rap uh, necessarily being great. I think we, we have enough examples of it not being so great. Yeah. But, I mean, I just want to read you one lyric that I noted down. The morning star Tariq, I was born to be a teacher, where the scorpion or the frog, the nature of the creature, is to evolve, though it's the savage beast we truly are. My words should be studied up in Berkeley and Juilliard. You know, the one that I noted down, actually, I noted down the next lines from that <laughs> bit, which go, my words should be studied up in Berkeley and Juilliard, or my bars are hard as solid gold bullion. My name in the Quran, like the kingdom of Suleiman. You done lost your mind trying to call me a Moulinian. And I don't know what a Moulinian was, but it's an Italian-American racist slur against black. But it's like, yeah. this is improve your word power and your understanding of black America but also, to the max. Just straight up as poetry. Yeah. It is... You know, it really should be Is this basically going to be thousands of words when you go on the entry in Genius? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's like dense texts explaining every reference. It really feels like you're watching two people at the very top of the game. It feels virtuosic, doesn't it? It feels like one of those insane clips of a violinist that's playing something that seems inhumanly fast or something yeah. like that. Well, it, it, that. That's how it... Wasn't it a really long-running collaboration? They were supposed to do something yeah. 15 years ago and then Danger Mouse's career took over and then they kind of came back. So it's been yeah. this thing that they've been thinking about and working on for a decade and a half. Danger Mouse being so work-shy and absolutely just can't get him to do anything. got another album coming out next month <laughs> with Broken Bells. They got their thing. Oh, yeah. He's, I mean, he's, he's made records. He made records with Mark Linkus from Sparkle yeah. Horse. He's made, he produced a Nora Jones album. It's fantastic that you can come across something from a, a, a you know from a genre that you, in some respects you kind of think is is has kind of reached its apogee of development and then something comes along like this i think it, it's got this potential to be a proper crossover album that will uh 
Yeah, there's lots of people who would go, oh, and I've been arguing this for 30-odd years, hip-hop's not real music, oh, which, is like, which, yeah. is, which is just ridiculous. And you can go, right, OK, here is an entry album for you yeah. in the same way that, I don't know, Three Feet High or Rollison uh, was or yeah. something like that. This is an album that everyone can find some way into. You can be a, a, a hardcore hip-hop fan or you can be somebody who vaguely follows it or mm. used to follow it or has no understanding of it. And there's enough reference points there's enough amazing tunes in yep. there to draw you in. Well, he's got the middle-aged white guy. He, he's got that demographic. He's absolutely <laughs> laughing. Well done, Danger Mouse. Well done, yeah. Black Thought. Yes. That's a, let's have a, a coffee around our coffee table. Yes. Finally, we're making an educated guess that many listeners may have put themselves through the experience of Netflix's documentary Trainwreck, Woodstock 99, a three-part exploration of the planning, staging and ultimate collapse into violent anarchy of a 1999 revival of the original Hippie Festival. That original Woodstock featured Santana, Janis Joplin, Joe Cocker and Jimi Hendrix. It became an endlessly deified article of faith for the US counterculture. The 1999 revival, after a similarly messy one in 1994, was anything but. And with a very non-peace and love lineup, including Limp Biscuit, Corn, and Kid Rock, <laughs> breadhead promoters at the controls, a setting on a disused Air Force base, and a brodacious atmosphere of macho idiocy, which boiled over after three sweltering days, it definitely was not three days of peace and love. So... What do we make of this documentary and how do we feel also, especially, about violent sexual assaults being treated as just another part of a crazy rock and roll story? Here's the trailer. How are you guys doing today? Welcome to Woodstock. There is a sixth sense that you develop when you spend your life going to venues. Woodstock, baby. I can tell you a hundred feet away what the energy in that venue is going to be like. It was not your parents' Woodstock. We got off the bus, and I was like, something's not right. It was like 1,000 degrees. I think we should leave. It's so hot here. Water was $4 a bottle, which is a ridiculous cost. The porta-potties, unusable. You had kids rolling around in what they thought was mud. In an environment, we're exploiting women, and you could get away with it. You could feel something bubbling. Eamon, this one's clearly coming in the slipstream of the Fire Festival documentaries that we all watched during lockdown. Yeah. It was kind of fun watching spoiled rich kids suffering mild discomfort. Yeah. This vibe is not the same, is it? It's not. And I, uh, I remember the... Uh, coverage at the time uh, after it came out said oh this is a bit of a disaster and kind of they set fire to things mm. but I had forgotten just how unrelentingly awful yeah. the, the whole experience would be They're like every single thing they did was wrong they put it in the wrong place they had no infrastructure they stopped people bringing in food and drinks they had how they'd worked with the commission stand selling like food and drinks, which basically allowed them to do uh, a very topical phrase at the moment, surge pricing. And, and as as things started to run out, the prices were just being jacked up. So you're, you were having these people in a, an enormous heat way of being dehydrated and then basically just drinking alcohol and taking an enormous amount of drugs. You had this awful bro culture. The, the place was awash with just the absolute worst examples of man in America in the that awful shirt-off entitlement that you still 
little gap around America. They're probably all selling cryptocurrency at the moment. <laughs> but just, just awful, awful people who you know don't like music. These were not music people. They basically mm. just wanted to go for a weekend of hedonism and possibly sexual assault if it mm-hmm. kind of came their way. They were just horrible, rotten people. And then there were occasionally other people who were interviewed there and they were kind of quite innocent because they were caught up in this idea about this could be our Woodstock, this could literally be our Woodstock. And the optimism of those people versus the brutality of the people who were ultimately the core demographic. And a huge amount, they, they talk about the location and all the rest of it, a huge amount of blame has to go on whoever the booker was picking those acts. Because yeah. if you're going to have a recreation 30 years of Woodstock with peace and love, you've got to have the kind of acts who would tap into that, would tap into that sense of uh, community and oneness and so forth. And you're not going to get that with Fred Durst or Kid Rock or Korn. These alpha male aggressive artists and they're absolutely fine in their own context but if you're going to put whatever it was 200,000 people into a disused airbase and then treat them awfully and then subject them to this kind of yeah. music and also and this kind of the lyrics are let's smash shit up yeah, yeah. I'm going to set fire yeah. to something yeah like, like ideologically war particularly Limp Biscuit, what they represent it's just horrendous it's just yeah. there is there's there's zero justification for Limp Biscuit. there was an awful bit where their manager who obviously was coining it in at that yeah. time went oh you can't blame Fred Durst for this Fred Durst was surfing through the crowd on a bit of the uh, was the sound tower the they pulled yeah. down and he was like telling people to smash stuff up he absolutely was a catalyst for kind of mm. what what fell there but he was also there as the kind of annoyed at God of those knuckle headed bros with their with their shirts off and their t-shirts stuffed on them in, in their pockets but that wasn't unknown to the people who booked him yeah yeah they absolutely so, knew they absolutely yeah. knew what they were getting but they but also the lineup was really weird because you had this awful bro sports metal or new metal or whatever you want to call it and then in the afternoon you had like Cheryl Crow and Jewel you had like yeah. these completely getting shit thrown at them yeah, yeah. and like there, there was no there was no kind of theme to the days. It was basically just, we're going to headline with awful people mm. being awful. And they will encourage the audience to be even more awful. Michael Lang, who was obviously behind the original Woodstock, mm. was involved in this one, heavily involved with this one. And even, like, at the time, you, you saw the footage of the press conferences, and then he was interviewed. I think they said at the end that he passed away a couple yeah. of, like, a couple of weeks or a couple of months yeah. after he did the, the interview. And even then, he wasn't getting it, or he was refusing to get that he could be in some way responsible for this awfulness, he, and that he didn't, they didn't have a contingency plan for any of this. Yeah. Alex, what did you think? Um, so I, I mean, obviously there were a lot of awful people there, but I also saw a sort of cultural side to it. To me, it seemed like the culmination of the decade of extreme sports, you mm. know, but I mean, by 1999, there was a pay-per-view channel dedicated to very extreme sports. 2000 was the start of Jackass. Yeah. And I I saw a lot of that. I saw a lot of let's do the stupidest thing imaginable so we get famous. It just seemed to me that the assumption 
that a crowd, you know, in the middle of the sort of love power movement, listening to Joan Baez and mm. um, Jefferson Starship. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Airplane in those Airplane. days. Yeah, Jefferson Airplane those days. Um, that, that the reaction of the crowd would be the same as a crowd of effectively hooligans yeah. listening to Limp Biscuit and mm. um, what was there was a corn, band. Yes, Corn. Yes, yeah. Corn was the one that kind of started it all off. I just think the, that assumption is just so asinine, yeah. so insane to start with. The idea that you can generate sort of loving togetherness yeah, yeah. by putting with, with, violent yeah. people together with violent music. And then, the, and then feeding them drugs and not feeding sure, them food. Sure. Yeah. There's a producer at one point mm. um, that that says, the quote is, at that point the train was off the rails and you just didn't know what would happen next. You fucking didn't know what would mm. happen next. You may not have known exactly what would happen yeah, next, yeah. but you knew it was nothing good. <laughs> well, this this brings us to the, the the aspect of the documentary, which I found most troubling, which is in the third episode, it's very clear that there's widespread sexual assault, groping and worse going on across yeah. the audience. And the documentary is showing you still images of this happening. Yeah. And I'm like, not just I don't want to see that. You don't have the right to show that. Do you know what I mean? Mm, yeah. The documentary, the, the, uh, quite a, uh, there's that, and it's the fact that at no point... Is anybody properly held to account, either in the real world or by the by the filmmakers? It's just like, wow, this was wild, wasn't it? Wild. You also see the dimension of the reporters from MTV. It's as well as the apogee of the um, the extreme sports era. It's the apogee of the ironic nothing matters era. You know, people mm, are tearing this mm. place apart. Women are getting assaulted, and the reporters from MTV going, "Hey, it's going to be crazy and wild out here, isn't it?" Yeah. Inverted commas, yeah, eyebrow that, raised. Spring break. Woo-hoo! Spring break. We're here. Yeah, yeah. There, there, yeah, there was something completely. We are potentially condemning this, but we're also... But we're too cool to take a stance. Yeah, but we're also... Have a look at these. Here are topless women. And you can yeah. see pictures of kind of man grabbing at them and stuff like that. And it felt like if you're trying to make a, a moral, ethical point about sexual abuse at festivals, which is a huge, huge issue, and there have been mm. recent campaigns and studies to try and improve this and give women a, a, a greater uh, security and safety at these things. But you're kind of looking at it, and it, it was almost a pornographic take on yeah. sexual assault, which is obviously the wrong, completely wrong way to do it. So that kind of felt, it felt really queasy watching yeah. them condemn this stuff while also zooming in yeah. on on the acts that they were yeah. condemning. We don't need to see those things. You could just say, people, there was sexual mm. assault. We don't need to see the video footage of yeah. that. I also don't know whether... Uh, and we won't know that until we speak to those people, whether there is some sort of broad support because this might start something mm-hmm. in trying to investigate those historic but, but um, uh, those historic situation. I, I, I mean, I thought it was it was a fascinating watch, right? Yeah. We we all agree that it's yeah. compelling viewing. I just thought it was a documentary on toxic masculinity in very many ways. I felt from the older guys who just wanted to make money and didn't give a shit about anything else 
to the corporate sponsors, to the entitled thugs that want to burn stuff just to feel something, to the opportunistic groper, to everything yeah. about it and was about, that yeah. culture of toxic masculinity. Yeah. And I thought it was also a really interesting parable on consent. I found it deeply, profoundly scary because it reminds you of just how much of our daily lives on how many levels depends on the vast majority of people doing the right thing. Yeah. Well, and was... how if, if the people doing the wrong thing tips from 1% to 3%, mm. you're fucked. Well, there was, there was one talking head who kind of summed up that kind of contradiction of that duality. It was one guy, and to be fair to him, he looked like uh, Beavis and Butthead yes. at the same time. And he talked I about... I know exactly who I you mean, like right? guys. <laughs> but, but he... There was one little bit where he kind of went, oh yeah, we went into the pit for the biscuit or cord or whatever and said it got so hard we thought oh we're not going to come out of this alive or whatever mm. and then right at the end they say oh so what what think of Mike what do you think of it he said I still think it's the greatest weekend of my life and you're yeah. just you just didn't get it you yeah. were there you saw all of this awfulness yeah. taking place but maybe that is your life that that was the absolute or, highlight of your life or maybe if you're half a mile away from the stage and you're not really, really in the middle of the riots and you didn't get that record no, no what he said he said he was right up the front oh, and he right. thought he was going to die he did <sighs> Yeah, There's no account I mean, taste. one of the women that was groped said, "I'd do it again." Because yeah. yeah. it was an incredible I found experience. It insane, yeah. yeah, just weird. Well, for me, it is a summation of why 1999 to 2001 is the absolute worst period for music, youth culture, television, and everything in the entire history of the race. It's not a good it really advert. It's not a good advert for. It's not a good culture. advert for anything. Yeah. <laughs> Just got time for some more tunes. We don't often get a chance for the panel to make a choice, but hey, it's summer. Alexandreo, what have you chosen to recommend to the listeners? Oh my goodness, I am so excited to be choosing tunes, which I never <laughs> ordinarily do. So um, this is a, a Norwegian band called Bruen, mm -hmm. spelled B-R-O-E-N, um, and the track is called Shut Down. And I need to declare an interest here. Mm -hmm. So my niece... Um, is uh, uh, the vocalist right. for the band. They're signed up to Bella Union. They're playing festivals at the moment, so they're about to kind of hit the big time. They are a very unusual outfit. They are very Scandinavian, <laughs> very collaborative. They make weird costumes for each other for each gig. Um, there is a, a tuba player, a synth a person and a bass player uh, and a drummer. All of them also play really weird little instruments, jingling here and there and table harmonicas and they do loads of sampling and stuff like that. I, I think um, it's varied and interesting music. They do things not just with the harmonies that are innovative, but they do things with the beat that are different. And I absolutely love that. They they use meters which are unusual, which switch from like four beat to five beat and back again, which are counterpoint to the melody. And 
I just love them so much and not just because I'm the singer's uncle. <laughs> wow. I, went, I went to see them uh, at the Barbican a couple of years back and the show just blew my mind. Well, have a listen. This is Bruin and Shut Down. Which brings us to the traditional choice of the greatest record of all time. Not that we can ever play them, they're very hard to clear, but we can add them to the playlist. Eamon Ford, what's your choice? Wow, I've already given one in the past, but this is my other favourite record of all time. I picked Substitute by Clout, Mm. who were a South African all-girl rock band who were fantastic. And it was a cover of a Righteous Brothers song from a couple of years earlier. And famously, and topically... It was capped off number one in the UK by You're the One That I Want by uh-huh. John Travolta and the and the late Olivia Newton-John. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful song. And it's basically, it's kind of a heartbreaking as a premise, which is basically saying a uh, uh, girl singing to a boy going, I know that you're not happy in your relationship, but if you ever kind of want to trade them in for me, I'll kind of be <laughs> the second best if you want me to. Uh, but it's it's just a wonderful, wonderful song, and I love everything about it. And their the logo was incredible because the O of Clyde was like a pair of pants. There you go. Dig it out. Straight on the playlist. Alexandreo, what have you got? Yes, I get finally the opportunity yes. <laughs> to push a bit of opera. The greatest song of all time people. is. Yes. So the greatest album of all time, in my view, is the very first recorded recital of Maria Callas, the great... Um, opera singer. Um, it was recorded in 1949, so it's on the cusp of phonograph records to LP. Mm-hmm. It was issued actually on both. It's a recording by the Italian record company Cetra, which actually had top-of-the-line recording facilities at the time, rivaled really only by EMI, which is the company Callas went to three years later. It captures her at her freshest, And there is something magical and mystical about it because it involves both the heaviest, heaviest arias. So she sings from Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. She sings Isolde's death song, effectively, which is considered the heaviest thing for the most dramatic soprano voice. And then on the other thing, she sings things like Bellini's Puritania and Norma, which are considered the lightest material for the lightest soprano coloratura voice. And this was a feat. Mm-hmm. You know, this is someone walking across a tightrope between the two towers or over the Niagara Falls. That's what this album is. And it is an extraordinary achievement and uh, one that still sounds as fresh today as it did how many years ago? 70? 73 years Well, the good news is you can judge for yourself because this is out of copyright, so we can play a bit. (laughs) So here's a bit of Castadeva with Maria Callas recorded on November the 9th, 1949. Deep crate digging opera beats here. Get your ears around this. Hurrah for the public domain.
And with that, we're at the end of the podcast and it's closing time chatter. What will we be discussing as we drink $12 water standing next to a burning bin waiting for Kid Rock to come on? Eamon, what's your closing time chatter? My closing time chatter is I'm not, I'm not big on the gram, but I'm on there. As in the Instagram, I Instagram, hope. yes. Yeah. Uh, I post in terrible pictures of nothing. But I got a recommendation, and I kind of went, and generally your recommendations are terrible, but it's this kid whose name is Oscar Whiteney, and his uh, uh, Instagram handle is Brian Jones Fashion Icon Fan. Very long name. And he's this kid. He looks about to be about 13 or 14, and he's got the proper Brian Jones pudding bowl haircut. And he he tracks down vintage clothes so he dresses like Brian Jones kind of between 1965 and 1969 and his commitment to this is incredible and also he just seems a really charming kid so it's kind of nice to see a young kid on Instagram not being an awful influencer just this kid going I'm obsessed with (laughs) Brian Jones Jones and kind of 60s culture and mod culture and I'm going to get all of these clothes and whether because he's small as well he's probably getting a lot of these things custom made as well and his attention to details it's just a wonderful thing to have this kid who's so obsessed with this world and joyously showing it off to people and it's just a really lovely Instagram account to follow so What's it called? Brian Jones? His uh, handle, his name is Oscar Whiteney, but uh, it's all one word. Brian Jones fashion icon fan. All one word. <laughs> yeah. This sounds it's, brilliant. It's lovely. I'll show you the pictures in a minute. He's wonderful. Very nice. Alex, how about you? Well, let me drop the tone. So all the Mission Impossible films are on all four at the moment. Excellent. We just showed them all. And uh, we've rewatched them in order ahead of the big two-part conclusion to the franchise next year. They hold up exceptionally well, I have to say. The action is as good as any Bond film. There's loads of humour um, there, including about Tom Cruise being short, like all the time, which is quite unusual. Wow. He, you know, he's he's sensitive about it famously. I just, I have an admiration for him, you know, because he he really knows how to pick a script. He's one of those people that you look over a career of quite a lot of films, you know, over 50 films. And I I was seeing like a list of his worst. Okay, let's exclude The Mummy, that recent abortion. But a list of his worst 10 films includes Legend, by Ridley Scott and Days of Thunder and Vanilla Sky. And I just think if I were an actor who had made 50 big Hollywood films and among my 10 worst were Legend, Vanilla Sky and Days of Thunder, I'd be pretty fucking pleased. I wouldn't. So hurrah for Tom, I think. Sean, if you're listening, still would. I I would not consider myself remotely a Tom Cruise uh, fan, but I have watched by accident or intentionally a lot of his films and he's done a lot of good films it kind of it's weird because I would never ever say oh I must go and see the new Tom Cruise film but the ones that I've seen have been great same with me but you know he's not like Nicolas Cage (laughs) you look at the the, just this desert dead (laughs) turkeys what's yours Andrew this week mine I am enraged at the stupidity of the BBC getting rid of the classified football results at Why, the end of Andrew? Saturday. How often did you listen to them? All the time, actually. Did It'll you? Be, yeah, yeah. It's just Why? a soothing Don't thing. Why? Don't you have a phone? It's not the point. <laughs> it's the ritual. It's the And also, it is the recognition that the pyramid of football exists. 
And League Two is as important as the Premier League. And, you know, Scottish Premier League matters. And you need to know that it's East 54455. You need to hear this. If the BBC decided to get rid of the shipping forecast to save four minutes of airtime in the dead of morning, there would be marches with burning torches and pitchforks on Broadcasting House. This thing is part of... The heritage of football. And it's going to do what? Add another four minutes of Chris Sutton oh, talking rubbish. Yeah, I'm, I'm enraged by it. I think it's pointless. <laughs> what if they and put also, it out at the right time as a mini podcast for you? Would not that the point. Not the point. Because you're, you're, loads of people in the car driving home. People are about to make the dinner. It's part of the day. And the real thing that annoys me about it is if the BBC had tried to find a section of people who were broadly in favour of the BBC and tried to work out a way to make them angry at the BBC, they couldn't have done it better. Oh, the only thing they could have possibly done to make it better was to, I don't know, have an asteroid hit Ambridge or something. Yeah, I'm no football fan, as you know, but I think the, the point you make there about the fact that they go down into the, the yeah. lower divisions is really important because it's about those those teams that don't have this huge amount, these millions of dollars yeah. sloshing around. It's it's the teams that are kind of living hand to mouth yeah. and have just have local support, yeah. and that's important to nurture that. And it's part of the kind of the idea that no football exists except the Premier League. Yeah. And I'm a Liverpool fan, yeah, but I mean, I wanted I want to know that Hamilton Academicals exist. I want yeah. to know what's happening with Preston North End. Yeah. I want to know. I, I mean, I'm a big football fan. I haven't listened to it in years. I tend to look at the the results sort of on, on the computer or the phone. And to me, it was always connected to a culture of playing pools, which yeah. is, you know, my father was a gambler and was a hideous memory of my childhood <laughs> because he would lose a lot of money. You have a then, reason to dislike yeah, it. Really well, upset. No, yeah. I'm just saying yeah. that it's not just linked to all this lovely stuff. Yeah. It's also linked to gambling. Yeah. You know, so... Yeah. Well, that's that's all sport. All sp- yeah, we sure. can get rid of all of it then. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm for that. <laughs> Let's not do that. I'm I'm hoping that it's a, a, one of those sort of fake announcements that's designed to uh, have a very public reversal, so that everyone give the BBC a round of applause. I have a feeling, sadly, that it isn't. And that's the end of the podcast. Thank you, Eamon Ford, for joining us on The Culture Bunker. Thank you for you having me. You were our only guest, but a very <laughs> well, special one. Yes, you were, you were our best guest today. <laughs> you filled that chair magnificently. Sean and Yelena will be with you next week with a very special guest. Brett McKenzie of Flight of the Concords will be present to talk about his new album, Songs Without Jokes, and much more. So hit that subscribe button now. Remember, you can get all the tunes on our rolling playlist. The link is in the show notes. From me, from Alex, from producers Alex Reese, Yelna Sofinevich, and Jade Bailey, thank you for listening. Back next week. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. The Premier League. Aston Villa 3. Everton 2. Arsenal 2. Leicester City 0. Brighton and Hove Albion 2. Newcastle United 2. Wait a minute. This is the wrong script. The Culture Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison and Alex Andreu. The producers were Yelna Sofronievich, Jade Bailey, and me, Alex Reese, with assistant production by Kasia Tomashevich. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>